Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 409. So, to avoid suspicion, the first thing I did when I came to Severin was buy dinner, good hot stew, and rough bread. I was sick to death of elegant food that was milk warm by the time it made its way to my rooms. Afterward, I brought two tippling flasks, the sort normally used for brandy. Then I spent a relaxing half hour watching a small traveling troupe perform the end of The Ghost and the Goose Girl on a street corner. They weren't a demora, but they did a good job of it. The mayor's purse was generous to them when they passed the hat. Eventually, I found my way to a well-stocked apothecary. I bought several things in a nervous haphazard manner. After I had everything I needed and a few things I didn't, I awkwardly made inquiries with the owner about what a man might take if he was having certain troubles in the bedroom. The chemist nodded seriously and recommended several things with a perfectly straight face. I bought a little of each, then made a bumbling attempt to threaten and bribe him into silence. By the time I finally left, he was insulted and thoroughly irritated. If anyone asked, he would be quick to tell the story of a rude gentleman interested in impotence cures. It was hardly something I was eager to add to my reputation, but at least there wouldn't be any stories making their way back to Codicus about my purchasing laudanum, dead nettle, bite view, and other equally suspicious drugs. Lastly, I bought my loot back from the pawner, with an entire day to spare. It nearly emptied the mayor's purse, but it was my final errand. The sun was setting by the time I made my way back to the foot of the shear. There were only a handful of options for making your way between Severin High and Severin Low, The most ordinary were the two narrow staircases that cut back and forth up the face of the shear. They were old, crumbling, and narrow in places, but they were free and therefore the usual choice for the common folk who lived in Severin Low. For those who didn't relish the thought of climbing 200 feet of narrow stairway, there were other options. The freight lifts were run by a pair of former university students. Not full arcanists, but clever men who knew enough sympathy and engineering to manage the rather mundane task of hauling wagons and horses up and down the shear on a large wooden platform. For passengers, the freights cost a penny going up and a halfpenny going down, though you'd occasionally have to wait for some merchant to finish loading or unloading his goods before the lift could make its trip. Nobility didn't use the freights. The vintage suspicion of all things remotely arcane took them to the horse lifts. These were drawn by a team of 20 horses hitched to a complex series of pulleys. This meant the horse lifts were the end of the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick. And now Quoth is is committing fraud. He's got his employer's money and he's spending it frivolously. You know what? Quoth is doing praxis. When your boss gives you petty cash, you spend the petty cash. You don't bring whatever, you don't get all parsimonious and come back and give the boss the change. When your boss, like, says, here's 50 bucks, go buy yourself lunch, you spend the 50 bucks. You don't spend 20 bucks and come back with 30 bucks and go, here you go, sir, thank you so much. Not only that, Quoth is doing wealth redistribution. He, like, generously tips tips the traveling troop with the money he's got. In addition to buying mm-hmm. the little sundries that he gets. Yes, and he's also doing uh, Cointel. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's got good OPSEC. He's got good tradecraft. Yeah. What is Cointel? He's, uh, he's sh- shaking off the tails. Counterintelligence. Oh. He's shaking the tail... 
He's making sure nobody gets the full story if they're interrogating anybody after the fact. Yeah, he's throwing people off his trail by by like calling attention to to something else so that people won't see what he's actually doing. But of course, you know, the, if Codicus is innocent, this is all you know kind of damaging, right? That like cuz if Codicus did catch wind of what Quoth was doing, Codicus might go Oh, this guy thinks I'm poisoning the mayor. He doesn't know that I'm actually doing X. I can explain to him. He's got the wrong end of the stick, right? But his tradecraft to make sure that won't happen. I mean, that's a pretty big risk to take, though. What is? Like, definitely it's a worse situation. So situation one being, Quoth is right, Codicus is poisoning him. And if he finds out, who knows what he'll do. So being situation one, and then situation two being Codicus isn't poisoning him. Both is wrong, but is also preventing Codicus from clarifying. Like, situation one is a worse scenario. Oh, I completely agree. If Quoth's assumption about Codicus is true, then he is being exactly the right level of prudent. But, you know, maybe he's wrong. Quoth? Quoth always acts intelligently on the information that he has. He always does the best thing he can do with the information he has available to him as he understands it. Quoth's problem is that he doesn't fully analyze the information available to him or ask follow-up questions to make yes, sure that his assumptions he are he correct. he has all the information. He assumes yeah. there is no more information. Exactly. To be had. And I mean, a lot of the time, uh, the DAC is quite stacked against him. And so it's like what would you do? Right. Like you, I think sometimes you have to be decisive and you can't afford to say, well, let's wait and gather more information. So maybe we're a bit too hard on Quoth. A lot of the time we call talk about his tragic flaw, but it is, you know, his tragic flaw in the Grecian sense. So uh, I think we can keep on harping on it. Yeah. I'm not saying that he like could or should do otherwise. I'm just saying that like the way that he acts is, because of who he is as a character and a person, right? And and so the decisions, he could make no other decisions than the decisions that he makes because that's who he is. I see. I also do think that it, it bothers him a little bit, as it would bother any man to be forced to put it about that he's uh, he's having trouble getting it up in order to throw people off the scent. But it, that's why it's a good cover, because... You know, someone isn't likely to, to to lie about that sort of thing, right? Yeah, it's a good cover. I agree with that. I mean, it's a. I would say it's a bit much, but I guess it's not in this case. Also, it's sort of weird that it just happens to have the same ingredients as what he needs. No, no, no. He's buying. He's buying the the impotence cures, which I'm sure don't work, and he's buying the other stuff. That's the point. It's like when you go to the pharmacy and you have to buy condoms, but you don't want to get embarrassed when you look at the cashier because you're buying condoms because then they'll know you're having sex. So you buy shampoo, a bag of chips, uh, some razors, a toothbrush, some markers, a notebook, a newspaper, and some condoms. By the way, let's toss some condoms in there, you know? So that's what he's doing. He's, He's couching all the stuff he actually wants as if he's buying it haphazardly to like embarrassedly cover up the fact that he's actually after an impotence cure. 
Oh, I see. I see. I see. Yeah, I've definitely never bought extra stuff at a pharmacy in order to cover up that I was buying something like silly. <laughs> yeah, see, very relatable. But not actually. Well, see, Jordana, that just shows that you, like, I think the common wisdom is that if you're embarrassed to be buying condoms at a pharmacy, then you're probably too immature to be having sex. Yes. What you should oh, actually see. do, what you should actually do is buy the condoms and like a cucumber and a huge like industrial sized thing of lube, put them down in front of the cashier proudly and say, what of it? <laughs> and the cashier will look at you like, I have so much other shit to do today. Leave yeah. me alone. <laughs> yeah. The real answer is that the cashier at the pharmacy does not give, a, give shit a shit what you're buying. <laughs> I also really like the piece of world building about the different transit systems for getting up the big cliff and that there's that there's, that they are related to uh, income disparity, right? Like the the option that most poor people take is like the most tedious and the least fun, but it's free. You just take the stairs and it like it sucks and it takes a while and it's no fun, but it's probably good cardio and it's free. But most people who have a little bit of money to spare take the kind of like freight wagon, but then the rich people do not want to be associated with the kinds of people who take the freight wagon and they don't want to like get involved with arcane bullshit. So they have their own even more expensive and like inefficient way of doing it that costs them more money, but they can afford to spend the money for the, for the privacy and to them convenience, even though it's actually like a less efficient way of doing the thing. Well, you know, you get to to ride up in the sky also, which is probably a novelty in this age. Mm -hmm. But also it comes to the risk of death, as we learn on the next page. Yeah, we'll talk about this more tomorrow, but I feel like the freight one would be like as exciting as as the other one. Yeah, because you're still getting like hoisted up the cliff like it's an elevator. But in one of them, you don't have to deal with either merchants, the riffraff, or arcanists. Yes. Oh, well, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. We sure will. Do we have mail for today? We have a short letter today. This is from our old friend John from Vintus, who writes, Apropos of nothing. Ahoy, pagers. I was thinking about Quoth's brutal takedown of the poem that Ambrose had composed for Fella, and realized that here may be another reason that Ambrose hates him. Ambrose is probably self-deluded enough to believe that he really had a chance with Fella and that she should have totally loved his poetry. From his perspective, perhaps this situation plays out in a similar manner to Johnny Lawrence's outlook on how Daniel LaRusso stole Allie from him. And what's worse here, having stolen the girl, he doesn't even bother to keep her. Indeed, one could read the dynamic between Quoth and Fella as him stringing her along and toying with her feelings. Peace, signed, John from Ventus. I think this is astute largely because I think if you read the things from Ambrose's perspective, Quoth's little japes are far more damaging than Quoth understands them to be to Ambrose, like especially jackass, jackass. But I bet you that there's a, a consistency, like every little one of these is like a huge blow to him socially, politically, uh, and like reputationally. And that's why Ambrose escalates it so much. Yeah. I mean, I also think it's worth saying that um, as 
a wise person once said, being a writer is being exactly at the midpoint between incredible narcissism and crippling self-doubt. And Ambrose probably knows somewhere deep in his soul that his poetry sucks ass, um, but he can't ever admit that or believe it, you know, consciously. So I'm sure that having his poetry made fun of by this rub bastard, when he deep down knows that it's exactly as bad as Quoth says it is, uh, is infuriating to him. And then I think he all, he like transposes that belief into, man, if that guy hadn't made fun of my poetry, I totally would have had a chance with Denna. So I'm going to yes and this suggestion, but I think it is very astute. As we all know, it's the insults that are true that hurt the most. That's true. Yep, that seems like it would make sense. Well, we'll continue to make sense uh, in defiance of the talking heads on tomorrow's page. <laughs> that's a good that's a good pull jeremy well done the wind